This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. It's official. The hydrogen economy is here. The global transition to clean energy is gathering momentum, and it's clear that hydrogen will play a critical role. Biotech offers modular, scalable, and rapidly deployable hydrogen production systems through sales, rentals, leases, and gas as a service to customers worldwide. If you're interested to learn more, visit biotech.us to find out how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low, or zero-carbon hydrogen today. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Senior Associate in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who's calling in from London. On today's episode, we will be speaking with Tim Yeo, Chairman of Powerhouse Energy. Tim is a former MP and cabinet minister in the government of John Major, and he has been deeply involved in environmental policy work for decades. Today, he is the chairman of Powerhouse Energy, a publicly traded company with specialized expertise in proprietary technology in the waste to energy sector. We are delighted that Tim made the time to join us on the show, and we'll get to our conversation with him in just a minute. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at about hydrogen. And with that, let's get started. All right, guys, we're back after last week publishing our first live recorded interview with Josipa. This week, we are going to be speaking with Chairman of Powerhouse Energy, Tim Yeo, who I understand, Chris, and you'll have to fill me in on my British politics, is a former member of parliament and potentially was, I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but a cabinet member under John Major. Is that right? It, it is indeed. And actually a, a man with a lot of experience in the policy side of energy, which, which is obviously a really interesting space. And uh, I, the conversation that we're, we're having today is, is not about energy policy per se. It's about Powerhouse Energy, which is this aim-listed UK company. But the policy side is, is really fascinating and, and really interesting as well, because I think uh, one of the things that sometimes is, is underappreciated is how important understanding of policy is to energy businesses, right? Because actually energy is inherently and is always and always has been inherently very political and very policy orientated and minded. And so getting Tim's perspective on the company, why he came to the company and what he sees as the opportunities for the company, given the hat that he wears, I think will make for a really interesting discussion. Yeah. And Patrick, I think it's fair to say this is our first, although I guess Jen Baxter has a background in waste energy technologies, but I believe this will be our first guest from the uh, waste to hydrogen space that, it, you know, is from a company that specifically does that. Uh, what is what is the uh, trajectory, you know, the profile of companies in this, uh, in this space uh, doing waste to hydrogen uh, projects? Are there many of them, Patrick, or is, is Powerhouse somewhat unique? So I, I, I think, I think the, the kind of interesting thing about this technology is that to be, to be, you know, kind of direct, and, and Tim speaks to this, uh, or is likely to speak to this, I think, the plastics and, and petrochem kind of non-combustible products, waste streams, typically have very, very poor recovery and recycling rates. So when you, you take think about your recycling bins and you go to all that effort, only a very small portion, um, kind of typically the, the kind of various kind of polyethylene derivatives are the ones that are recycled and recovered, right? So a lot of that waste is just landfill. And um, if we are to get to a sustainable 2050 net zero kind of target and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, we have to be looking at pathways to recover and reuse or those forms of energy so that we don't, you know, as best we can, we can avoid taking more barrels of oil out of the ground, right? Like, so this is a, a bit of a, a leave it in the ground kind of statement, but in reality, it's about using these products more fully, more productively so that we're not taking more to produce things separately and differently, right? So there's um there's an important aspect of this that that that's related to sustainability that I think is is kind of crucial, and I think there are 
there are people looking at it in various different ways. There are, are people who have looked at kind of pyrolytic kind of approaches to these these various fuels and, and things, but it, it, it just depends on what their kind of their target point is. And I think this one being hydrogen obviously is 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 it's why we're talking to powerhouse. Excellent. Well, I think, uh, why don't we do this, guys? Why don't we get Tim on the line and uh, we'll, we'll let him speak for himself on that front and see what he has to say. Okay, so Tim, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I think we'll kick things off with the uh, with kind of the general background question. Can you tell us a Tell us and our listeners a bit about Powerhouse and uh, actually your own background and what led you to Powerhouse. Sure. Well, thank you for making the connection. It's a great pleasure to talk to you all. So Powerhouse Energy, um, it is a listed company in London on the AIM market, uh, and it's been developing its technology for about five years. I would say until 2019, it was basically a research company. But last year, it developed into being a fully operating business. Uh, last year, it took over uh, uh, an even smaller company called Waste Electricity which had certain rights to the technology which uh, Powerhouse has been developing. That's how I came in. I was chairman of Waste Electricity. So technology uh, is designed to convert waste plastic, sort of waste that's unrecyclable plastic, uh, which therefore otherwise will go to the landfill, sometimes incinerated, even sometimes exported in certain countries, and convert that uh, waste to a syngas from which we can then produce heat or power or, more importantly, for this conversation, and I think for most markets, uh, hydrogen. And Powerhouse has raised funds to uh, say that the special project vehicle, which was actually built our first commercial-scale plant starting this year, uh, in conjunction with our UK partner, Peel, we'll talk a bit more about them later on. Uh, and so we're now ready to go with the uh, construction. The, these plants uh, are quite compact. They don't need much space. With all the storage and so on, not more than an acre, so they're quite a, a versatile range of locations they can put in. That's, I think, important to the future of, of the technology. We see ourselves at PHE as a technology company. We don't want to be a project developer. We don't want to be a plant operator. So the business model is to license the technology, the use of it, to operators in return from annual license fee. In that way, we can minimize the capital we need to raise to, to roll out the technology, certainly across the UK and we hope worldwide. And our partners, Peel, have an option to acquire exclusive rights in the UK. So my background was originally in finance and investment, then in politics. I was in the UK Parliament for 32 years. I served uh, as a minister in the government of John Major back in the last century. Uh, my last job in Parliament was to chair the Energy and Climate Change Committee. I've had a very long-standing focus on climate change uh, and related issues, uh, and in particular the need to switch worldwide to low-carbon economic business models. Uh, that's work in its early stages in my view at the moment, but it led me into companies like PHE. I joined the board uh, in July last year, and I became chairman in September. And I think really what motivates me is the possibility that our technology then address, I think, three of the, three of the most urgent <coughs> excuse me, environmental problems. The, the first is plastic waste, which, as I say, most of it's not recycled, a big chunk of it's not recycled, a lot of it goes to the landfill. Some parts of the world, it finishes up in the ocean where it's causing terrible problems. Secondly, we will be able to produce low-carbon energy. We're not claiming it's zero carbon, but it's low-carbon energy. Very important in the response to climate change. And thirdly, by using hydrogen, particularly as a transport fuel, we'll be greatly improving air quality in many urban areas across the world. So that's what excites me about it. So uh, I suppose following directly on from that, uh, what what's unique about Powerhouse's IP, and and how does it how does it differ from other kind of pyrolysis or gasification technologies? Well, I think firstly, of course, we're we're not relying on combustion at all. Secondly, our small scale uh, means that I think, as I mentioned earlier, we will be able to operate on small sites within communities uh, next to existing waste facilities, uh, close perhaps to a, a depot where there are hydrogen fuel. Truck, trucks or buses uh, which need to be refueled and where perhaps in one case if they're refuse trucks they could be delivering waste as well. It's a technology which has um, been developed to exploit those advantages. I don't want to say too much about exactly how it works because it's still protected by some IP and we're trying to strengthen that. What it does allow us to do is to maintain what my technical people call chemical engineering equilibrium inside the vessel and in the systems 
And that should provide uh, some degree of protection against sort of usual challenges, which gasification faces in terms of tars and solids and so on carrying over. We, as I say, we have a suite of, uh, of patents we're uh, applying for. It's really about what we do once the gases get inside the kit uh, and how they're mixed up. Uh, and we've done a lot of work. That's where we've been working really uh, on the last three years, uh, how we control what happens inside the system. Yeah. So, so just very quickly, I know I know you've you mentioned the the kind of use of plastics and and the challenge that we have globally with with managing plastic waste. Are you focused on any particular types of plastics? Are there any ideal starter feedstocks that you're you're targeting in this this kind of early point? No. Um, my experience of a lot of waste energy technologies is that they the, the viability of them, the financial viability often falls down because of the amount of pre-treatment you have to do to the waste supply. So we've designed this to, to take all, all forms of plastic waste. We're not going to have to sort it or cut various types of it out. Uh, that is one of the key USPs, really. And you know, as we build the first model, obviously a first-of-a-kind project, we're always going to run into some uh, unexpected consequences. But we're confident that we can do that. Uh, and in that way, Obviously, a significant part of the income for the operators of these plants will come in the gate fee, which they're able to charge the waste supplier. In this case, I think we'll probably find that companies which do plastic recycling uh, will want to pass on to us the kind of plastic which they can't recycle. So, and, and, and for that, the operator of the plant will get a significant gate fee. So I'll have one more quick follow-on. Is, is there any <laughs> any and, and, and apologies? I'm, I'm I'm this is interesting and very yeah. You're uh, doing a, very, you're doing a Chris Jackson and you're asking lots of follow-ups, which is great. Well, someone has to someone has to give you a break at some point, Chris. Um, no, but but just interestingly, you know, given the the challenges in in plastics recycling in general, uh, you know, have you a sense of what a a, you know the size of the units are or the you know are they modular like have you any kind of uh, envisioned targets uh, kind of to scale kind of deployment in mind yeah yes they will they're designed to be modular so that um and in that way of course if we can build a large number of the same uh, we expect to cut the capital cost quite significantly the first one uh, that we're starting to build right now will be about 30 million us dollars to, to get it up and running but we would think that could be reduced by certainly a third possibly by 50 percent uh, when we're just rolling off the production line. Um, so that's the design. We, we want to make them fairly small. I mean, they're designed to take maybe 40 tonnes of waste plastic per day. That's a couple of truckloads. So, uh, again, siting plants like this, often, it was certainly in the UK, where we have very tight land use planning uh, regulations, uh, all sorts of objections can be raised. Uh, and so uh, one of them frequently relates to the number of truck movements in and out of a site. So two trucks in each day will deliver enough to keep us going for a day. Uh, and we expect to be able to produce maybe three tonnes of hydrogen per day on, on the basis of, of about 40 tonnes of waste coming in. Alternatively, we can produce 48 of power, megawatts of power. Um, for 48, yes, 48. Uh, but I think that in, in most developed countries, it's the hydrogen that is going to be the, the, the most interesting uh, output from the plants. Obviously, there'll be a few, in a country like Indonesia, for example, where they've got a lot of demand for remote electricity generation, it might be that our, our plants are suitable there, but certainly in the UK, it's going to be about hydrogen. Um, one of the things I was going to ask, and it kind of feeds into this next question um, that we have around kind of um, the partnership with Peel in the UK, which I believe is where the first demonstration site was going to be, is you, you talked about planning, but planning is, is a really complicated part of the story, and, and waste-to-energy projects um, have also often struggled because of the planning elements around it, right? So you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about why the partnership with Peel, why the site that Peel have chosen is the one that you've decided to go ahead with and, you know, uh, talk a little bit to the sort of strengths of that and why that will help you to kind of, as it were, uh, succeed where others have failed, shall we say? Yes. Well, firstly, uh, uh, Peel is a company which I've worked with before on other waste-to-energy projects, uh, and so has most of the people involved in PHE. So we're, we're all, we have you know, good personal relationships. There's a high level of trust between us and, and Peel. Peel uh, is a quite a large infrastructure provider in the UK, particularly in the transport and waste industry and, and the energy industry. So they're good partners for us because they have uh, developed a lot of uh, waste energy uh, projects. Uh, they're quite experienced at tackling the land use planning uh, problem. Uh, they've got good relationships with the what we call local councils in the UK, who have responsibility for land use planning decisions at, at local level. So they're natural partners for us. They've got this very impressive energy business park in Cheshire, northwest England, 
where they've got a, a, a number of energy projects. They've got some wind turbines, both onshore and offshore. They've got other waste energy projects there. Uh, and so it's a good site for us. Uh, site preparations are already underway there. And so that's where the first plant will be. We've already identified with Peel two other sites in their ownership where the second and third plants will be built. And, and those are going through land use planning sent negotiations right now. So in Q2, I hope to be able to announce where our second plant will be. And it's a very topical location, shall I say, uh, in Scotland. Uh, and the third one will be in the northwest of England as well. So Peel have identified for us uh, sites already in their ownership, uh, as many as 15, where they could uh, deploy this type of plant. And because of their knowledge of the, of the UK, they've identified 77 sites where this technology could be deployed. So if we show that it works, which I hope we will do by the first quarter of next year, then we can roll out quite quickly in the UK because the sites have been identified. And as I say, with Peel's expertise, uh, they've, they've got a, a lot of experience, for example, on uh, contaminated land where they, they will acquire it, they will clean it up, uh, and then uh, get permission to develop it in various forms. And maybe just on that a little bit, you know, one of the things that um, does come up a lot is around cleaning, right? For, so for the waste to energy sector, you know, we there is uh, quite a lot of people talking about sort of steam methane reforming uh, either of natural gas for opportunities, but also biogas and, and various waste gases. So that's kind of, I guess, the more conventional route that people have gone down. And, and there are lots of really interesting applications for that. But one challenge is NOx and other particulate emissions. How does um, the you know uh, powerhouse energy solution get around some of those challenges? You mentioned that there's not combustion, so usually combustion is one of the big problems with NOx. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how that works? I appreciate there is some IP sensitivity, but uh, you know it, I think it's a really interesting part of it, and especially given that waste is often co-located near where people live, air quality then becomes this huge barrier so often because you know you can't combust and you can't get rid of it without it creating a real health crisis, whether you leave it there or you try and treat it. Yes, indeed. So we're very mindful of that, and, and the technologies had to be designed, uh, particularly with the very rigorous uh, land use planning regulations in the UK, I and mean, they're some of the most onerous, I think, in uh, anywhere in, in the world. So there's a small amount of solid waste, which will have to be collected about once a week, uh, which can be used for landfill, for road building, that sort of thing. The uh, emissions into the air are pretty minimised. We are able to do quite a lot of treatment before it actually goes outside outside the kit. Uh, so uh, th- those, I think, will not present a problem for us in terms of um, you know, we're not going to be coming in as a sort of unwelcome neighbor in terms of our process. Yeah, I mean, just expanding from there, I think, uh, you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about is uh, what kind of international uh, opportunities and applications is Powerhouse looking at? And, uh, you know, where are you guys exploring these days? Yeah, because you touched on one of them, didn't you, Tim? I think earlier it's teased it up a little bit. Well, um, we believe that the technology has potential to be deployed in, in many parts of the world. Our first territory uh, is Poland, which is uh, in the eastern part of the uh, European Union. But Poland we've chosen because it has a particular energy problem. Uh, it's very, very heavily dependent on coal and particularly on lignite. So it's got a severe pollution problem. Uh, the European Union, which is trying to help Poland and other coal-dependent member states in the EU, to wean them off their dependence on coal. So there are quite generous grants available for alternative uh, energy sources, and particularly, uh, certainly, the, um, our technology would be eligible for quite substantial capital grants uh, in Poland. It's an interesting first overseas partner, first international partner for us to have. Uh, so heads of terms were signed with our Polish partner in November. They have got a very good relationship in a Polish city called Konin, and Konin, in the city of Konin, They've already got uh, sites for 10 of our plants, uh, and the mayor of uh, the city is very keen to get us operating there. So in Poland, our partners are talking to a very large, well, a global engineering company which specializes in in gases, uh, and we are hopeful that they will become involved in the project. Uh, We hope that will be something which can be secured in Q2 this year. If it is, we may be able to use that partner in other EU territories as well. Further afield, we have started uh, an engagement um, in Thailand. That's quite well advanced. Uh, We are having conversations in both South Korea uh, and Japan and Australia. So we've got our eyes fixed on on quite a number of markets. What we want to try to do is to find the right partner in each of those territories, 
others we've done with Peel in the UK. Hopefully a partner which has relevant industry experience or connection who will take the lead in, in deploying our technology in, in, in those countries. We, we are quite interested in looking at the US as well, but it's not quite so far advanced uh, as the places I've mentioned. Uh, and the business model will be the same. We will, we will license the technology to operators in those countries. We don't want to become project managers ourselves uh, or even to develop them ourselves. Uh, and I guess the you know, question that sort of um, sits maybe alongside that is, is a policy question, right, which is that typically policymakers in the hydrogen context have always, uh, I think, had a very electrolysis-focused lens, um, you know, so, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a question as well with all the different colors of hydrogen where you, you classify some of these things. As um, me and Patrick, some listeners will know, had a strong, terse discussion around whether waste or biogas reformed hydrogen should be green or should be something else. Um, so, you know, maybe, Tim, you talk a little bit about, you know, what you're seeing from the policy landscape around what countries are sort of supportive of the power energy hydrogen solution. I guess you would call it green, but maybe you call it something else, low carbon or zero carbon, I don't know. Um, but you know, it'd be quite interesting to get your perspective on that. And then also, you know, from the UK perspective, we just put out a paper, my trade association, the UK Hydrogen Fuel Association on green hydrogen. You know, we, we outline a number of policy measures. It'd be interesting to get your view on what sort of policies countries like the UK, which you're operating in, should be doing to sort of support the type of technology that Powerhouse is trying to bring to the table. Yes. Okay. Well, a lot of interesting points raised in that uh, in that question. I think that uh, we find the green, blue, grey labels a bit clumsy, uh, but we're not claiming to be green. We know in the UK we wouldn't be defined as green because we are going to use natural gas to raise the temperature in which the waste goes into the kiln, and, and therefore uh, that there will be some greenhouse gas emissions uh, caused by that. I think uh, we would call ourselves sustainable uh, in that we're using a, a waste material for which there is no other use other than to go to the landfill or to be incinerated. Uh, and so that's a, that's a sort of raw material, I think, which we are not taking away from anybody else. I think one of the key measures, however, will be the net impact on greenhouse gas emissions. The concern about climate change is accelerating very quickly right now, and all sorts of companies, including others that I'm involved with, having to measure their impact extremely carefully. So what we will do is publish the analysis. We'll get an independent analysis of exactly what our impact is in terms of carbon footprint, acknowledging, as I say, that in the production process, there will be uh, emissions caused. But if you look at what I would say, the other side of the balance sheet or the other side of the equation, if, if the hydrogen that we produce is used as a transport fuel, which we believe will be probably one of its main uses, certainly in the UK, um, given that I think batteries obviously got the market in terms of cars and, and light vehicles, but they're going to struggle with, with trucks and, and buses and make it onto trains as well. So uh, if we can show that the emissions avoided by filling a truck with hydrogen rather than diesel, uh, and we've estimated that our, if, we, if we're producing three tonnes a day, we'll have enough for 90 lorries to travel 300 miles, so that's 27,000 uh, truck miles where diesel is not being used, we can put those, calculate those emissions. And the, the, the challenge for us is to make sure that those emissions that will be avoided are greater than the emissions we actually cause in the production process. So that will obviously have to be independently validated, and we're working on that right now. I think the policy debate in the UK is at an interesting stage. I, I believe, and I, I noticed that um, Patty Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, uh, wrote in the Financial Times a few weeks ago that to get to the 1.5 degree centigrade target temperature increase maximum, he, he, the IEA estimate that there has to be a 90-fold increase in hydrogen production capacity by 2030. 90 times. That's a huge, in, in nine years, a huge uh, increase. Now, so what countries like UK and others need to do is work out how can they get into hydrogen production quickly? Uh, in, the, in the long term, I'm sure only green hydrogen will be used. Just like in the long term, I'm sure all, ec all electricity will only be generated from zero carbon sources. But there's an interim period when we have to make progress. If we're going to get to net zero by 2050, or perhaps even sooner if we can in the world, uh, challenging. But there's some interim steps. And, and indeed, that's recognised in the EU. The EU taxonomy uh, recognises that gas has a role because it's a lot cleaner than coal in, in the sort of interim stage. And so I think what we will say is we've got the capacity to deliver a significant increase in, in hydrogen production capacity 
by using a technology that is sustainable, that does have in effect a net zero impact on emissions, even though it's increasing them on one side and eliminating them on the other. So the debate, I think, amongst policymakers is can we afford subsidies, which certainly in the UK would be needed to move immediately to green hydrogen? If you're going to run all the hydrolysis off uh, wind farms and so on, there's going to be some, some subsidy needed there. We can say to the government, look, if you're going to encourage our technology, we're not, we haven't got a begging bell saying either consumers or taxpayers have got to subsidise it. It will stand on its own feet. So, so I think one last question, which might be a, a good follow-on given that, that transitional kind of longer-term pathway and role that you've, you've kind of outlined who who's investing in 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 powerhouse and and i suppose if you know obviously that i'm sure there's some uh, some interesting folks in there but but what has, what has motivated them to get involved and support you as you as you kind of grow at this early stage okay well the biggest shareholder uh, is a family called the white family they've been uh, backing this technology for quite some time going back seven or eight years so they have about 26 percent of the company and we've done two fundraisers since i joined the board one in september uh, and then a bigger one uh, last month in January. And the White family stood their corner in both those raises, so they've maintained their shareholding. And I was pleased to say that the the uh, January, the, the September raise was done at 2.5 pence per share. The January raise was done at 5.5 pence per share. So uh, that was a, a bigger raise at a price of more than double the previous one. We've got one absolutely blue-chip European institutional shareholder, who unfortunately have asked not to be identified, uh, though obviously other investors uh, are aware of who they are. They're, they're very good people to have. They came in in September. They bought some more shares which came on the market at the end of October, and they tripled their holding uh, last month at, at a higher price. So um, we're very pleased about that. Because of the, I think, the excitement around hydrogen uh, and because of the fact that we've moved from being a really micro cap into being a small cap but not a uh, our market cap's about 400 million US right now. We've attracted a lot of attention from investors um, and from brokers, uh, which is obviously helpful. Uh, and I'm talking to a, a wider range of people than I have been before, and certainly way more than Pirate Energy was a couple of years ago. Uh, we've got one uh, New York-based medium-sized farm manager company talking to us. I've had two sessions with their analysts in the last three weeks. That's a manager of about 40 billion US. Uh, and we think there's a chance they may decide to take a stake. If they do, we'll find a way of meeting it and take them a bit of time to build that sort of kind of level of investment they want to make through the market. But I think what we want to do is to have a mixture of both geographically shareholders of investors and also a mix between high, high net worth individuals. But I'm keen to have a decent chunk of institutional shareholders as well. One of the key aspects of this, really, I keep emphasizing this, but because of the business model, we don't expect to keep going back to, to our shareholders for money. Again, I'm very, very conscious. I've been involved in, uh, as I'm sure we all have, uh, a number of early-stage businesses which look frightfully promising. But it always takes a bit longer than you think to get it actually working, and it also costs a bit more than you think as well. So you're constantly going back to investors uh, for money. And then even when you prove that it works, you want to roll it out quickly, you'll go back for more money. So we believe we've now got enough money together with Peel, Peel are our partners in the SPV, to see this through to um, being commissioned and operating. And interestingly, when Peel came in for some shares on the first fundraise, and because of our relationship with them, and they have the right for a payment to have exclusivity in the UK, they also, we granted them an option to take up about £10 million worth of shares within six months of financial close on this first plant of Protoss. Well, we expect financial close to be reached certainly no later than the end of Q2. And so that would mean that six months later, this is an option which is now well in the money. It's exercisable at currency quarter P. Our shares are, I think, about six and a half P now. So it's highly likely to be exercised. That will bring another £10 million into the currency. So in terms of cash, we don't envisage going back to shareholders unless we've got a very powerful reason to do so. If an overseas territory looked very attractive and it required some money from us to, to, to prime the pump, then obviously we look at that we can go back to shareholders and suggest it. But my aim is to try and minimise the number of times we are shareholders for money. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I did want to ask, and I'm conscious of time, so I know um, I won't do too many more, but the question that did come to mind here for me was to think about, 
when you're going to the market right now, and market is a very lively market, I'm sure you know, Tim, and you know, everyone is sort of seeing that. What everyone is saying is, is really, and what everyone seems to be investigating is, is the growth story narrative, right? People want to see that sort of longer term trajectory. And, and you know, almost to your point, uh, even if you were cash flow um, positive and you were you know, generating a healthy EBITDA, uh, it, it, there's almost something a slightly cynical comment one might make, which is that that would probably reduce your valuation rather than you raising more money and trying to grow faster. Maybe being slightly cynical. So I, I, what I'm wondering is, based on the discussion around today, if you if you're looking at the UK and saying, well, maybe that's a transitionary market, is the real growth story here actually one that I do think is quite an interesting? One which is, you know, you have to prove these technologies work somewhere, and actually markets like the UK or US or European markets are really good test cases because there is a good regulatory environment there's good government support and you know once you can test and prove it there we know that in malaysia and china and in many of these other markets including many african and latin american markets there will be demand so you know if you're like the the next five years or ten years of peel or so powerhouse energy is is developed countries but actually the longer term growth story is a developing world story is that and and just asking if you think there's some truth to that because that's actually quite interesting is an interesting story and one that you know I don't think enough companies in the space really talk about. Well, uh, we would completely agree with your analysis. It's going to be good to get started in in the UK, so that's where we happen to be. We're very proud that this could be a British technology which uh, is deployed around the world uh, and ditto in, in in the EU and so on. But I think the real cream does come uh, in Asia, South America, in Africa where this kind of distributed model, a distributed plant, and it's, a, you know, it's a modular plant. So you know, if they want 250 in Argentina, we'll press the button and they'll be rolled out. And I, I mean, I think the timescale is even shorter than you say, although so we're going to get it going in three or four years. But I, I genuinely believe that once we've proven the model, so as I say, our target could be operational Q1 next year, there is a, a, a global market, really, uh, and and we would we have every reason to want to roll out as quickly as possible if we can if we can get the licensing model accepted in other countries and I think if the return for the plant operator is sufficient there's no reason why that shouldn't happen it's a, it's a, um, quite attractive so we believe that uh, that's where you can start to justify significant valuation you know we're obviously in the business of trying to make money for my investors there's a lot of hope hope value in some of the uh, uh, valuations around right now, and then people might say there's even some in our, although uh, 400 million US doesn't mean all that much, and it needs about you know, 15 plants in the UK and justify it. But um, anyway, um, so I think that we will be prioritised those slightly more distant territories uh, as soon as we feel we've got something. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not, I, one of my other jobs is advising the South Korean Ministry of Industry, Trade Industry, Trade Energy and Industry, MOTI, Trade Industry. Uh, and I know a country like South Korea. Technology people are quite cautious. They're not going to say we're going to run with this until they see it actually works. So, although we're having some conversations there, I don't envisage we're likely to sign anything up with South Korea until 2022. But if they do decide, I mean, it's rather an impressive country the way it's run and use of technology. Um, so, I think all those markets will be uh, very potentially very attractive to us, and they will certainly be very high up our list of priorities. Fantastic. Uh, well, Tim, you have been more than gracious with your time, and uh, we really appreciate it. And so we will let you go back to, to your day and getting your important work done. Perhaps next time when we can all travel again and you uh, come back to visit the United States, uh, those Greyhound buses will be running on hydrogen. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. We all know the transportation sector is facing increased pressure to transition to zero emission solutions. And uh, to borrow a phrase from our dear friend Patrick Malloy, this is the thing. Hydrogen provides a clear pathway to decarbonization. Biotech offers its customers turnkey solutions for hydrogen supply that enable vehicle manufacturers, transit agencies, fleet operators, and logistics organizations worldwide to adapt to climate regulations and produce hydrogen for fuel cell electric vehicles at prices that compete directly with diesel. To learn more about how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low, or zero-carbon hydrogen, visit biotech.us today. All right, guys, first member of parliament to be on the show, which uh, I'm delighted by. I don't know about you, but uh, really, really interesting conversation with Tim. Chris, 
What uh, what were your big takeaways from our chat with uh, with Tim? So I, I think there's several things that are interesting here. Um, you know, so waste to energy is a complex space, and it's one that's something of a dirty word to my CFO. If you ever tell my colleague Marco uh, that I was looking at paralysis for gasification, he'd probably do a sign of the cross. And I think there's probably quite a few people in the space who might have a similar perspective. And I think it's it's not because it doesn't make a lot of sense in, in a sort of abstract way. Um, there is a lot of waste we generate from processes. We do need to find more efficient ways to use it. And if we can generate resources that can offset, you know, other forms of fossil use or that can, you know, in some sense reduce the amount of waste, that's very positive. I think where this is kind of interesting to me is, um, you know, and I think Tim was kind of talking to it more towards the end of the discussion is the fact that this isn't really a, a UK play. I don't think actually the big story, the big story is actually the international element. You know, if you go and travel to a lot of developing countries in the world, it is shocking by many people's standards how much waste there is there. And it's because there just isn't the infrastructure that's been set up. So where I think the most interesting part of the power story is, and, and Tim got onto this a little bit later in this discussion, is actually around the, um, the broader international perspective. And I think very few people who haven't traveled a lot in the developing world appreciate how significant a challenge waste is and treatment and management of waste is. And something that you know strikes me is actually that for a lot of these countries, it is not realistic to expect that you will be able to electrify everything immediately or that you'll be able to immediately shift towards clean zero emission solutions for everything overnight. You know, and actually, I can definitely see a role, you know, and, and I'm sure Patrick will tell me if he disagrees, but I can definitely see a role for you know, a modular technology that helps to reduce the level of waste that is currently built up in a lot of these areas, which they're not able to treat or efficiently dispose of, and that can actually create forms of energy, whether that is power or hydrogen, that is useful. Now, you know, uh, technically, there have always been so many issues with waste energy products, and Tim talked about the quality and consistency of feedstock being one of them, which it, which will always remain and, and always has been an issue there. Um, but, you know, I think as a principle, I'm broadly very keen to see or excited to see whether that uh, application for developing countries could actually help to genuinely be quite transformative in certain places. And, and certainly we need to find ways to use waste more efficiently and to reduce the amount of it. So anything that helps with that, I'm going to be broadly positive of. You know, Patrick, I'd say you're better on the technology than I am here. And this is quite a different technology to most of the core hydrogen tech, you know, how atypical is the approach that's being sort of described and, you know, uh, how confident should we be that this might be a little bit different to some of the previous expectations that have been built up but haven't necessarily delivered? Yeah, like, like look, it, it, it's a different a different technology than, than I've seen. And, and it's, it's an interesting one in part because it's modular, as you mentioned. It's an interesting one because of the the flexibility of feedstocks that it's that it's capable of handling you know like tim was very straightforward about kind of flagging that it, you know it's it's pretty robust and and you know to speak to the markets that you you flagged a little bit that robustness in feedstock is is valuable right one of the things that i think i think is critical here to to, to recognize is that you know waste management and waste processing is extremely challenging um, and if you talk to anybody in, who works in a conventional mechanical recycling, they'll they'll tell tell you very happily about the levels of contamination, the sorting challenges for different recyclable products immediately. But then when you get into even chemical recycling, it gets more and more complex. And whether we like it or not, there's a huge volume of waste that goes into landfill. Right? It's dumped, and um, you know managing that. Managing the uh, the kind of um, the processes by which we recover, whether it be energy or whether it be um, kind of derivative products that might come out the, the on the other side, or you know, producing things from waste is 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 valuable. We can still do that while trying to minimize waste. That's that's I think part of what you know, kind of Tim was also flagging here is that you know they are a sustainable uh, approach. It's about it's about utilizing waste products as much as possible, right? We're we're in a we're in a tight spot on on a lot of waste management issues. Chemical recycling is very challenging, very expensive. Mechanical engineering, the amount of recycling companies that go bankrupt is is non-trivial, right? So we have a waste issue generally, and they're offering a pathway to use some of that to recover some um, value. But 
you know, let's be clear. It's, it's there. This is a huge challenge and this is a, this is a specific technology with specific application for a specific piece of it. Well, and as you Uh, said, they, I mean, they do use natural gas as part of their early process to kickstart the process to kickstart it. Right. I think that's what he was also describing um, as part of the heating up of the plastic at the beginning too. So, you know, it's quite, it's quite interesting because in some ways the, the other company that comes to mind when um, Tim was describing it is a fuel cell company called fuel cell energy. Right. And if um, some people who have been following the hydrogen market for a little while might be slightly familiar with the project that they have with um, Toyota in the States. And Patrick, if you remember the one I'm talking about with their Trigen technology, where they take natural gas and they create electricity and they also create hydrogen for the vehicles. Right. So they were kind of using effectively two different applications from the fuel cell. Uh, yeah, it kind of sounded a little bit like that. And it's one of these things I think has caught a lot of people's ideas, this idea that you can take a feedstock and create hydrogen and create power and that it can be in some senses dispatchable. Yeah, I, I guess the the question there then is how how easy is it necessary to use that and how valuable necessarily is the hydrogen from that? Because I think it's not it's not um, fuel cell grade quality, right? So you'd still have to purify it afterwards. Well, Chris, I actually wanted to follow up on something you were saying. And, and I mean, I, I, I see the uh, the front end. I think it makes a lot of sense what you're talking about, about potential applications of this kind of technology, or p- potential deployments of this kind of technology in you know, emerging markets where you may indeed have waste management problems uh, or even infrastructure issues. But I, I guess I, my question then, forgive me if there's an obvious answer to this, but would be the follow up to that let's say you deploy this technology in somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, right? And that does help. You can be, you can use waste products as the feedstock. What do you do with the hydrogen then? I mean, if we, if they don't have the infrastructure to utilize it locally, is that going to have to be transported then to, to markets that do have that infrastructure? How do we, how do we handle that? Well, if I can jump in just on that. Right? Please, please do. Yeah. I didn't mean, <laughs> please do. But honestly, when you have available supply, finding a use case is not going to be the challenge, right? Like, uh, you know, for instance, if if you were to think of think of a company we've discussed before, but uh, you know, the the gen cell technology, like, like you know, uh, dropped uh, kind of uh, I think it's annual or monthly supply of ammonia with a fuel cell towards generating uh, electricity, and I think uh, like uh, providing you know clean water supply, right? Like like. You could do something like that. You could actually start to convert local um, fueling infrastructure. You could like that's you get a solution to the chicken and egg problem if one of the cheap byproducts that you get is a cheap hydrogen uh, molecule that you can use in a whole deep heap of things. You could probably look at also using it in some local um, industrial processes, depending on what's produced locally, right? Like this, you get a flexibility with a molecule, uh, and and that's you know that's a big part of why we're here, right? Like. An electron, you have to transport it, moving it, you know, around. It has to be consumed pretty quickly. A molecule, you can store it until you have a tank full and then move it to a market if that's what you want to do, right? You get that flexibility of storage and transport. Yes, it does cost some money, but like it, it, it gives you time. And I think there's value in that in emerging markets, especially. The other thing here that I've always said, and, you know, I said it a lot, um, you know, when I used to wear my World Bank hat was, you know, you have to remember that the rules of energy or the way to think about the energy uh, commercial proposition is just completely different in a lot of developing countries. It, the commercials are completely different. You know, um, you know, Andrew, you've lived in, you know, in, in a number of countries, including, you know, South Africa, but, but also Angola, right? And, and reliability and resiliency of supply is such a critical thing. And people pay multiples of what you would normally pay for power in a Western country, you know, like, or a developed OECD country. And so, you know, and someone says, oh, you know, uh, for example, I remember some of the early power to power applications for hydrogen where you had sort of solar and a battery and electrolyzer and a fuel cell. You know, a couple of years ago, people were saying it could be three, four hundred dollars a megawatt hour. People go, how does that possibly make sense? But we had countries that we were dealing with in Africa or the Caribbean or, you know, parts of uh, Asia and some remote areas where people were paying five, six, seven hundred dollars a megawatt hour for access to energy. Right. So, uh, you know, that's where then this does become quite interesting because, you know, I don't know, relatively speaking, how valuable creating electricity in a market like the UK is from waste, where electricity in the wholesale market is relatively low value, right? It's very, you know, it's a very competitive wholesale market in the UK. Burn dispatchable power, granted, is worth more, but, you know, in general, the wholesale average price isn't particularly high. 
But if you are a rural community uh, or you're a remote community in a developing country where you can have a predictable baseload of power generation, that is very, very valuable. And then effectively, the hydrogen could be a byproduct that is effectively almost an add-on. And I think, again, the way Tim was describing, you kind of have that ability to do one or t'other, right? So you could sell it as power, but over time, you could then provide an element for hydrogen. Yeah. And I think, again, the key here is to say, you know, you don't want to encourage a society that keeps generating waste to power the power plant. I think that would be a perverse outcome. I don't think Tim or anyone wants that. But I think it's about saying, you know, there are markets and, and areas where actually there is so much waste and it's going to take a long time to process it that actually the worst thing to do is just to leave it out there or leave it in landfill or just throw it into a straight incinerator. And if you can find a way to actually get a valuable product out of that, that can also help with the development objectives of these companies as well. That is a very, very different and more attractive proposition. Sure. To be clear, guys, that wasn't my question. Was not intended to be a uh, a stump stump <laughs> the co-host situation. Oh, Andrew, you're allowed I, to it is, disagree it is, if you disagree, right? I mean, you know, it's <laughs> no, I do not. I do not disagree. I do not disagree. I think it was an excellent. You guys both gave excellent answers, uh, and I think to your point, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you from my personal experience, anecdotally. A uh, city like Luanda uh, is ideal for what you guys are talking about, right? I mean, there is a serious waste management problem having lived there uh, for just over a year or so. Uh, serious waste problem. Every single building, every office building, most private homes that can afford to have one, every single office building in downtown Luanda and most office buildings just in Luanda in general large diesel generators attached because uh, rolling blackouts and brownouts are daily, semi-daily, at least weekly, right? So uh, being able to to manage waste and use it as a, a fuel generation feedstock and then potentially deploying fuel cell gensets uh, as the backup power, I mean, that's ideal. That would be ideal on a, on a number of different uh different uh levels so i think it's it's excellent like i guess the question to that i was asking and you guys answered is how do you what do you do with the hydrogen after you produce it in some of these places and if you're if you're able to to consume it in the same market it's outstanding the point that you you're hitting on there is 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 a very valid one which is you know um is hydrogen the most valuable thing you could create from that right you know is it actually the power that's the more valuable thing right i mean and that is a case-by-case basis because there are ways to energy technologies, and this is not the only one. And and so, so you know, so kind of joining your argument there, you know, I think it is worth you know pointing out that it, like every single company that we have on the show, there is a temptation because the challenge of decarbonizing energy is so massive. Humans, I think, instinctively and, and people instinctively want to try and find a silver bullet, one technology that's going to solve everything, and that it just will not happen. There will not be one. Hydrogen is never going to be the silver bullet that resolves all the energy sector transitional challenges we face. Um, it's just about finding use cases and applications where certain technologies will play a really meaningful role. And I think, you know, this is this is the classic case with companies like Powers Energy. And and it's a time and place thing, you know, the the predecessor which um, you know was referenced on the show Wastetricity, which was a listed developer that had the IP for Powerhouse and then Powerhouse I think reacquired them and, and took their listing on AIM. Yeah, Wastetricity have been trying for a long time to get people excited about the opportunities around the technology and been talking a lot to developing countries. And it's challenging because, you know, there are a lot of really interesting businesses that have tried to help developing countries to make the most of hygiene applications. And they should make a lot of sense. And a lot of the cases are really interesting. The, the problem is just that investors have consistently not really supported them. There was a company called Cascadian that did methanol fuel cells in Indonesia. And it's a really interesting company because they took Ballard's old methanol fuel cell systems, which um, were then licensed to a Taiwanese company, Chem, and they had 830 telecom towers across Indonesia and New Guinea that were running on, you know, backup 100% methanol, but, you know, much more efficient than diesel, much better for the environment, and could be effectively made into green hydrogen. But they, companies like that just couldn't raise money. You know, Anglo-American put in methanol fuel cells in some of the townships near mines that they operated in South Africa in 2015, 2016, providing remote power that again was cleaner more efficient than using diesel but a lot of those companies just haven't been able to keep going um and so i guess that's the challenge for someone like uh, you know powers energy is in developing countries um you know i think there will always be a lot of contention around waste to energy plants they are very contentious 
by their nature, especially the air quality elements, can be quite contentious. And I think the public are quite skeptical of seeing anything that uses natural gas as green. And so that is a branding challenge that I think they're going to have to face. But then if you're in a developing country, even if there is a business case, we are going to have to see institutional investors get more comfortable with it because yeah, I think there is definitely a role, but investors have to be willing to support companies that are actually going to take the leap of faith because it takes time, a lot longer than you think, as you know, Andrew, in these markets to make things happen. And the effects can be absolutely transformative. But you know, for technology companies that want to be the arm of waste energy into hydrogen, you know, which is a very successful, ARM was a very successful, is a very successful model. It was successful, mostly focused on developed rich countries. <laughs> That's why it was a successful licensed product. So whether you can pull the same trick again with this product in a market that is traditionally, to my mind, more of a developing market story, I think the jury's out. Exciting to see. I you know, want to see them come through, but, um, but challenging, certainly. Don't forget that in a country like Angola, uh, not only are there... Not only is there perhaps public skepticism, but they're going to have to uh, they're going to have to fight big oil <laughs> to get to get things to be run on hydrogen rather than diesel in the uh, in in the middle of Luanda, right? So yeah, well, I've got one final question for Patrick before I'll stop, Andrew. And and, and Andrew, I want your view on this as well. What color hydrogen comes off a <laughs> a powerhouse energy system? I am going to leave that that contingent. That is a setup. That is a trap, Chris. Uh, I am going to let Patrick take that one on. I'll have to look at it more closely, right? But like partial natural gas feedstock, pyrolytic technology, limited potential carbon footprint, right? Like that starts to speak more like a, you know, kind of a typical pyrolytic kind of technology, right? So... Is it um, is it turquoise or is it a, a bluey turquoise? <laughs> yeah, someone was telling me pink the other day, so God only knows what's going on. But yes, I think blue or, or turquoise probably. All right. Well, actually, that was surprisingly less contentious than I thought it would be. It arrived at a color pretty quickly. I mean, you know, pink is an interesting choice, but uh, all right. Good job, guys. See, we're, we're, we're making progress. We're solving problems around here, people. This just feels like the adult in the room gave us a pat on the head there, Chris. My boys are growing up. Well, I think Andrew just basically was keen to dodge the bullet, having taken on a new gig <laughs> yeah. uh, with our friends at Beartech and deciding that he doesn't want to weigh into the, uh, the colour debate. <laughs> I am happy to weigh into the colour debate on the next episode, guys. Dun, dun, <laughs> we are, dun, we are out stay tuned. That does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to Tim Yeo, chairman of Powerhouse Energy, for making the time to talk to us about waste energy technologies. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on Everything About Hydrogen.